Welcome to episode 25 of the TCF World Podcast. I'm your host, Thadassi Kambanis. Today, I'm joined by the Los Angeles Times Beirut correspondent, Nabi Bulos, and by my colleague, Michael Wahid Hanna, a senior fellow here at the Century Foundation in New York. On this episode, we'll discuss Nabi's recent visit to government-controlled Syria and the challenges of reporting from a region where access is always a difficult negotiation and the future always uncertain. Hi, Nabi. Hello, how are you? Good, it's great to have you uh, with us on the podcast. Nabi, uh, we're, we have a lot of questions we want to ask you about the, the, the challenges of covering, covering the Arab world for an American audience uh, during this uh, particular historic period. Uh, but let's start with your, your most recent uh, reporting trip. Uh, tell us uh, where you went and, and how it went. Well, so I managed to get a visa into government-held Syria. So in this case, I went to Damascus. I was able to go to a town called Mahardi up in northern Hama province. I actually got a chance also to go to Qunaitra, which is on the border with Israel. And um, yeah, that's it, basically, in those areas. So t- two things immediately spring to mind. One is the, the, the question about access, how you get in, and the other is the, the question of interest. Uh, how, how do you get uh, Americans to care what you're going to write about uh, from Syria? Well, in terms of access, I mean, the thing is, uh, with government-held Syria, of course, you have to apply for a visa, right? And, and as you know from your work in the past, I mean, this is very difficult to get. And, of course, they give you a lot of trouble in terms of uh, controlling what you see and what you can, and, or who you can talk to, really. Um, I mean, especially in areas that are outside of Damascus. I mean, for example, if you go to Homs or Aleppo or elsewhere, I mean, you're, of course, with a minder at all times. But and not just that you're with a minor, you actually have to get advance permission to go to that specific town from the ministry in Damascus. Of course, and, and I mean, you know, any kind of, uh, I guess, element of spontaneity is really not there. So, for example, let's say that you go to Mahardi, right, and you want to go to a town that's a bit closer to the front line, like Skhebiye, right, which is about really 20 kilometers, you know, you know, bit f- uh, just further on that defensive line. They won't let you. I mean, they really will not let you, and they're very, very specific about what permissions you have. And they're very hard pressed to actually give you anything more than that, and it's quite. So, so what has been what has been the openness of the government in Damascus to letting reporters for American outlets into the country? Well, obviously, very limited. I mean, the fact is, you know, they feel no need. I think at this point to give American outlets much credence, and I mean, in general, uh, I mean, if you contrast what's happening, for example, with Iranian or perhaps pro-Syrian Lebanese outlets, or even. Um, you know, Russian ones as well. I mean, those guys go in, you know, they have pretty much the run of the country, right? Especially if you're in, uh, in a Russian outlet, you can go to any of the front lines, you know, virtually without even asking anyone from the Ministry of Information. Well, for anyone else, you have to basically go get a visa. Of course, everything is very, very tightly controlled. It's actually quite infuriating because, for example, let's say you want to write a story about sanctions, you know, and I tried to do that, right? And I wanted to sort of talk to different people and see the effects of sanctions, right? Now, of course, now many of these industries are state-owned, so to get any kind of access to those, you actually have to get permission from, you know, the Ministry of Information, which then, uh, you know, proceeds to send a letter, that, uh, I mean, to this other entity, which then responds, blah, 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 it's a back and forth. It can take anywhere from four to seven days for them to respond. And the visa itself is actually four days. And then, you know, like with an extension of three days. So, I mean... So this is a details. form of, of control by making it both hard to get in and really uncertain about when. So there's no way you can plan... Your, your trip or, or research where you're going to go because you don't know which of 
the 10 cities in Syria you want to see, you'll be I mean, within reason, right? I mean, of course, I mean, you are allowed to go ahead of time and, and, and give them, like, a list of places you'd like to go, right? I mean, I mean, you have a wish list, right? And they try to, in theory, you know, fulfill some of that wish list. But, of course, you won't get everything you want. And, I mean, let's say that, for example, in the course of your reporting, you thought to yourself, hey, I mean, you know, for this story, I have to get this thing, right? Or, or this additional information. It'll be very hard to get it. It's actually quite infuriating. Well, so... Obviously, they, they are giving you a visa for a reason, um, and they're trying to tell a particular story to the world. Um, what do you imagine that the regime sees in terms of utility? What, what is it that they want to get out of this? I mean, they don't have to. It's true that they let in very few Americans or uh, uh, people working for American outlets, but they do from time to time. And, and what do you imagine is their motive in, in doing that? Well, I mean, the public motive they tell you is that they, I mean, I mean, the way they say it is, if you'll just sort of go in there and cover anything, you know, uh, you know, objectively, right, then it's fine, right? Uh, and, and, of course, objectively in this case means, you know, somewhat pro-government, right? Now, mind you, I mean, I mean, I say somewhat pro-government because I've written things, I mean, I'm sure critical in the past, you know, even in my visits, I've, I mean, I've managed to actually be able to go in there and write things critically and still get a visa, right? So there is some level, of, I, mean, I mean, there is some leeway with that. Now, in terms of what they get out of it, I mean, the fact is there is something, you know, useful about showing the government's line in the New York Times or the LA Times or, or NPR or what have you, right? I mean, there is some utility in that. Now, mind you, I think, you know, they don't really care that much, right? I should, I mean, it should be said, right? They actually give access to really obscure uh, journalists from, from entirely obscure, um, you know, outlets. But at the same time, you know, there is some utility for them in terms of showing their point of view, right, such as it is. And I think... You know, it's also worth saying, and, and I've spoken about this with Nancy in the past, that even if you go in there with, I mean, perhaps like the most anti-regime point of view, right, the fact is there are stories to be told there, you know, which will make the government seem sympathetic. I mean, the fact is that, you know, barring the whole situation, you know, in terms of the war, the people inside are suffering. People in Damascus are suffering. You'll see, you know, people who are starving. You'll see people who are having their lives, I mean, just entirely disrupted, right? And it's worth talking about that as well. I mean, it's worth showing that suffering too. Be, I mean, this is one of the one of the problems with authoritarian regimes, right? They're ham-handed and, and, and stupid about messaging. And so, uh, you know, I remember on, on my last visit to Damascus before I was blacklisted, uh, I, I went to a hospital where people had been shelled by rebels and were injured. And, you know, this is a story where the truth happened to support a government narrative. And even in that setting... They were so skittish and afraid of letting me talk to people that they staged, managed one or two interviews and then tried to hustle me out. Um, and this was a case where, you know, if they had just let people talk, they, they could have had a lot of uh, a lot of stories of innocent civilians going about their business, being shelled by these Islamist extremists who were, you know, heedless of human life and disrupting. I mean, exactly so. I mean, and that's the sad part, right? I mean, for example, when we were in Aleppo, I think this was, this was last year, we were at this place called the Razi Hospital, right? And we're sitting there, and, and right then and there, all these people came in because they were being shelled, right? There was a huge shelling campaign with grad missiles, and there was a massive campaign going on, you know, by the rebels to basically preach the city. And you suddenly had all these ambulances coming in, and because there was so much of it going on, they actually couldn't stage manage that well. And we got some great reporting. And the fact is that that story is worth being told. But as you said, they're so skittish. And, and they really have, I think, you know, this Soviet mindset, right? There's a, I mean, there's, there's a Ministry of Information that controls everything you do, right? that has to set up everything ahead of time. And they really don't like it if you try to sort of, you know, move on from that schedule or try to sort of, you know, deviate from what you have said. 
right? And the fact is, I mean, it should also be said, when they have given access to certain outlets, they've been burned. I mean, I, I for example, you know, think of this documentary by Vice News that happened a while ago. I mean, there were some, I would say, questionable things in that report, quite frankly. You know, they were manipulated. And the fact is that, you know, in that sense, I mean, they had given these people, you know, pretty good access and they were burned. But overall, I mean, even if you come in with, I, as I said before, even like if you come in with like, a, with like, a, with like an anti-regime bias, if you want, right, there are still stories to be told that are, you know, going to make them look, you know, okay. But they don't get that. Well, and I guess at, at this juncture, the other major factor here is they think they've won the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I'd, be, I'd be interested in hearing a little, a little bit about how, what you see as the kind of mood in the regime or regime circles. Um, wh- what is the attitude now? I mean, clearly, you know, most of the main battlefronts are quiet in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the question of the trajectory of the war has been answered. How it's going to end, obviously, is a separate issue, how long that's going to take. But there's no question now of the big issues that we thought about three, four years ago about sure. regime change. Um, so any, any insight into, into sort of the mental makeup of, of the regime would be uh, you know, quite useful. You know, it's pretty fascinating, actually. I think this juncture, especially now, it's, it's really worth covering because of sort of the different, I mean, I mean, the changing relationship of the people, or I should say of the loyalists, right, with the government at this point. Right, so for example, in Damascus, it was always pretty okay in Damascus for the most part, I mean, throughout the course of the war. But now, I mean, now that Wulta has been taken and all these other areas surrounding Damascus have been taken, it's really back to normal, effectively, especially in downtown Damascus and these areas. I mean, you'll see people going out, having a good time, etc. But the interesting part here is, is that people now, I think, are requiring more from the government. I mean, there's this feeling that since we stayed here, since we suffered during this war, now we have to get something back, right? Now we cannot just sort of continue in the same equation that happened in the past, right? Now, of course, you have to, all, I mean, we also have to understand there's been this massive devaluation of the currency. You have about 80% of the people living under the poverty line. Equally, you have all these issues going in terms of a sort of wasta or nepotism to get different positions, right? I mean, that's still, of course, rampant, and corruption, of course, is still there. But at the same time, there is now, I think, a greater demand by people to get something out of what had happened, right? I mean, I mean, people who, I mean, I've heard this complaint, I mean, from a few people in Damascus saying that, you know, we stayed here during the war, you know, we suffered in this war, and we worked for the government at the same time. Now, what will they get is a whole separate matter because, of course, the country is also broke, right? So, I mean, there, but but you know, but the but the demands have increased, right? People are now, you know, just demanding some kind of compensation for the time they spent in the war, and also, I mean, I mean, politically. You know, no one's going to say or, or no one's going to pretend that this is becoming a more open society, of course. But at the same time, you know, there is room for some kind of, I think, discussions now. So, for example, recently there was this decree regarding the Al-Qaf ministry, right, the Religious Affairs Ministry, the Religious Endowments, right? And, and this caused actually a huge fracas in the country, right? People were actually quite angry, you know, I mean, I mean, after all this time, after all that happened, right? And they were saying that, you know, you had an Islamist... It's a mistake yeah, yeah, of the country, right? And now you're giving these guys more power. How could you do that, right? And this was real anger, actually. So now that's changing, right? I mean, I mean, the law was modified, and it became, instead of becoming a decree, it became Law 31, I think, which means that it can be discussed in the parliament. So what was this law going to do? Well, this law basically was going to create a more powerful religious endowments ministry, right? So this should be explained, right? Um, you know, in most Arab countries... Uh, you have a religious endowments ministry that gets money from different charities and can then invest it in different ways, right? In Syria, the aim was to basically give this much more power. So it would basically be able to do investments. It would be able to actually 
uh, you know, you know, own ventures. It could actually also control the different projects in the different ministries, right? And of course, it could also appoint, uh, you know, imams and, and preachers. So after destroying the country partly to keep it secular, uh, Assad was willing to turn around and then give a sop to Islamists uh, in in the post-war. That's the way it was seen, right? That's the way it was perceived, right? And the funny part about this was that it would also involve. Um, I mean, basically, there was an idea that they would be able to appoint people from abroad to preach, and this caused a huge fracas, right? The notion that they would get in preachers from abroad, I mean, how could this be, right? And of course... Well, there's a lot of uh, unemployed uh, preachers up in the, in the former Nusra <laughs> Yeah, <areas>. exactly, right? <laughs> right lots of Idlib, you know, you know, people want to go in. So, I mean, I mean, I mean it was crazy, right? And, and the thing is, you know, when this law came out, actually, the text of, the, well, of this decree was leaked online by this one parliamentarian. Right? And it caused a huge fight among secularists and all these other people. And then finally, uh, the People's Council, right, Majid al-Shaab, as it were, right, went in and said, no, we can't have it like this. Right? This is in some ways unprecedented. Right? I mean, the notion that a decree was actually you know, modified and changed I mean, due to popular objection. I mean, I mean, that's a new thing, I would argue, in Syria. And the reason why this happened is because people are angry. Right? People are saying that you know, after all that happened in the country, after all this destruction, Right. You know, again, in theory, to keep it secular, you can't give these guys more power. Well, there's also the question of capacity, right? What, um, you know, given given an economy now in shambles and a security apparatus that's been really stretched to the breaking point by this war, what uh, what tools does this regime have at its disposal to run or repress or enrich uh, uh, their their what's left of their country? I mean, the fact is the officials at, in this country basically lie the nexus of a whole bunch of networks of patronage, right? That's just the way it is, right? All that has changed now is that the networks of patronage have had to increase and accommodate more people. With or, less resources. With less resources, basically, right? So, I mean, I mean, a great example of this is what's going to happen in the future with these various militias that work under the government's wing, right? How will these, I mean, I mean how will these different groups operate in the future, right? It, and actually, it was interesting. I was talking to someone, uh, um, you know, who basically is, is part of the NDF, the National Defense Forces, right? Which is basically, I guess, a people's watch that was upgraded into you know, sort of like a paramilitary... Like a National you know, Guard. I mean, the, Exactly, the, National Guard, right? And they operate in their, you know, you know in their localities, right? And basically, uh, with those guys, I mean, the question is now, you know, will they demobilize? Will they actually hand over their weapons and basically be, be able to go back to civilian life? I mean, how can that happen? Will right. they be given a government job in order to make it worth their while to demobilize? Exactly, right? And that's an important question, right? And also these businessmen, I mean, who had funded these militias, right? Now, of course, now we heard about various uh, instances where you had, uh, I mean, these, well, these prominent businessmen who had basically funded, right, trained, armed, etc., right, these militias, and they were basically slapped down finally, right, and their militias demobilized. But, that, but those were, you know, a few instances. What happens if you actually come up against someone who is too powerful, right? What's going to happen then? Researchers at the Century Foundation have been exploring ways to peacefully resolve the conflict in Yemen. Reports explore the pernicious humanitarian and strategic consequences of the war there and America's complicity and leverage to help resolve the conflict. To read more, go to the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and search for Yemen. We're talking with Nabi Bulos from the Los Angeles Times. This is the TCF World Podcast, uh, back from the break. Thanks again for coming to join us, Nabi. So on, your, on this last trip uh, you took to, to Syria, um, what, what sense did you get of um, how, uh, how 
organized the apparatus of the state is at monitoring you as a as a foreign journalist well you know as i say i i I sort of always laugh at journalists who say you know if i can go in there and meet whoever i want i mean the fact is no you cannot meet whoever you want because the fact of the matter is that 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 yes i mean i mean you are monitored you know it's true that the intelligence services were stretched out during the war of course but at the same time i mean the fact is you're talking about a stasi-esque situation right where half the population spies on the other half and so therefore you know if you walk into your hotel and the maitre d asks you hey how was your day Right. He doesn't actually give a damn about your day. He wants to know where you were, right? Because he has to coordinate with the other person who had, you know, you know, met you. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, we were in Homs one time, I remember. And you know, as I said before, like when you get to Homs, right, you are met by the local, um, well, the local security, and the local Ministry of Information people, right? So a local know? minder and a local security guard for both, sure, for both answering right. to intelligence, of course, right? And then you know. You know, on the way out, they tell you, okay, well, we're going to escort you until the edge of town, and then, you know, bye-bye. Well, in this case, you know, the guy was like, okay, well, I know you, you know, you know, and, and I know that you guys are leaving. Okay, bye from now. And from now, was like the center of town. So we had basically, you know, some distance until we left Homs itself. And on the way out, you know, we're like, hey, you know what, let's just stop here at this one moment and look at this view, you know, of this one area. So we stopped for five minutes, literally five minutes. You know, and, and within those five minutes, we got a phone call. You know, why are you still here? You, you know, you said you're leaving. Right? Why are you, you know, you know, standing in this neighborhood? What are you doing? Right? <laughs> and we left immediately. Right? And the fact is that, you know, I mean, there was no sort of army checkpoint near us, right? There was no official presence of any sort. So right? someone watching you knew who you were and called and in. called in and said, hey, you know, we have these guys with us. Right? He didn't even have to know who he were. You know, he saw a foreigner with us. Right? You know, in this case, it was my bureau chief at the time, Patrick McDonald. And right then and there, the guy was like, okay, we have this foreigner here, you know, with this bunch of people. You know, why are they here? And it was an immediate report, five minutes, you know. And so, you know, I always find it funny when people say, oh, you know, we can sort of do what we want to do. No, you cannot. I mean, the fact is, you know, this is a very tightly controlled situation. But with that being said, right, the stage management doesn't always work. So I'll give you an example of that as well. Uh, we were one time in Aleppo, and we're walking in the old city. And as we're walking you know, through this one alleyway, you know, uh, in, the, in the other way, you have a whole bunch of Russian soldiers coming in, right, Russian special forces guys from the Spetsnaz. Right. Now, of course, we weren't supposed to see them, but they just, you know, and we're just walking through this dead end and boom, you know, out comes this like bunch of tough guys. Right. Obviously, blonde, blue eyed, you know, and we just sat there flabbergasted. Right. And it, and it was a totally, uh, you know, embarrassing moment because, you know, suddenly like, our you, minder, but for your minder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our minder was like, OK, OK, you know. Yeah, step right this way. Step, you know, nothing to see here. I'm like, dude, it's Russian special forces. It is something to see. You know what I mean? And we actually ran and talked to them a little bit, you know, before they pulled us back. But the fact is that, for the most part, everything is really quite well controlled, I have to say. Especially in terms of, you know, monitoring you. What's the long-term narrative that's interesting out of Syria now with the, with the war winding down? Well, for me, I mean, at this point, you know, my focus is to sort of talk about how these communities can now go back together and actually live again, right? The you communities know, of, of who are on the different sides of the battle line. Exactly, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, the sort of the rough, you know, you know, outline is that if you were a minority community, then you were with the government. If you were, you know, Sunni, you were, you know, against them, right? And I think that's a very crude uh, division, but, but let's use it for now, right? So, for example, in Hadde, right, which is a Christian majority city, right? I mean, that place is is on the tip of Hama province as it goes into Idlib. Idlib, as we all know, right, has this, I mean, I mean, the highest concentration of, let's say, more extreme Islamist elements, right? 
how will those people now live with each other? You know, again, I mean, I mean, how's that going to happen, right? I mean, I mean, how did the people be able to go freely there? I mean, who knows, right? And we're talking about people who were in the part of the defense force, people who actually fought on the battlefield against their neighbors, right? You know, how can they go back together again to just sort of, you know, work and try to have a shared future? It's actually an interesting question, I would say. And the same thing is going to happen also in areas like Duma, you know, Dera, all these other areas, right? All these places that were under under rebel control and now have, you know, gone back under state control. How can they be reintegrated, right? It's actually, you know, I think fascinating. So, for example, I was in Duma as well. And there, you know, you had people who were basically trying to, uh, I guess, I guess rebuild their lives in a bureaucratic sense of the word, right? So they had to get IDs, register marriages, kids, divorces, everything. And that all had to happen within Duma, right? It's a whole apparatus now to try to basically reintegrate them into the state um you know, matrix. So this is someone who has like a provisional birth certificate exactly. issued by rebels during the exactly. period when there was no exactly. state, and now they're going back to a government agency and trying exactly, to Exactly, right? It. Unless you even have a car. I mean, I mean, something as mundane and quotidian as having a car, right? Let's say you want to basically go, right, and, and just find out what happened to your car, right? You know, like your car was stolen during the war. It might have ended up in Duma for all you know. I mean, there's like this whole, it's sort of like car graveyard, right? That had pickups, these like, these like, uh, you know, these Hyundai, uh, I forget the exact exact name but it was like an suv right and, and these were apparently very very desired during the war right because you could basically you know like like pop up and shoot people from the top part of it so these were often stolen <laughs> right and so let's say you're that dude you know you know in damascus you actually might go to duma to try to find your car it's not ridiculous right it's these again really really dumb bureaucratic processes that are now sort of coming to the fore again you know the experiment in syria is is really state-centric right i mean the, sure. the the regime wants but just an open question whether they'll be able to but their their proposition is not to muddle through with some some kind of constitutional uh workaround but to actually reimpose centralized yeah. authority everywhere the other part of that that is the, the interesting wrinkle here is the presence of a huge coterie of foreign forces whether they be you know, Russian on the side of the mm -hmm. government, uh, but Iranian, uh, Iranian Turkish, uh, Americans. Yeah. Um, I mean, this isn't a country in which uh, the Syrian uh, regime is in a position to just, you know, exert its sovereignty over the, the whole of its uh, territory. No, no, for sure it's not. I mean, I mean, of course, now, the, now again, like the rough sort of uh, outline here is that you have useful Syria, right? And over useful Syria, quote unquote, which say Western Syria, etc., Right, it definitely has that kind of power, and it can actually impose its its central vision, right? But in places like Idlib, I mean, I mean, Idlib is actually you know quite interesting now because the rebels believe they're going to be able to stay and control the borders, you know. And of course, I mean, there's no government in the world that would accept that, and especially not this one. I mean, they want you know control, right? That that concept also, I mean, that that's a very problematic concept, which which I think is is really actually misleading. So the the idea of useful Syria is that. Uh, there's somehow a big difference between the highly populated coastal areas and the vast desert hinterland, which you can sort of take or leave. Well, um, yeah, and, 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 and I mean, agree. It's, a, it's an analytical, I mean, it, and its origins are Fr French colonialists. Yeah, up with this that's idea. actually untrue. Um, and, and Assad, to his credit, uh, does not see the 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 desert as a sort of you know useless part that can no, take it's, leave. it's very important um, I mean, it's where I mean, the oil comes from yeah, yeah. it's where I mean, the wheat I mean, comes Zor, from uh, no but yeah, i mean i think i think at some level clearly there there are priorities right and that's different so right. and so, so during the war so, there were priorities so the, yes. so the regime yeah. was able to to why to for its own 
survival to prioritize and do an order of operations in which it understood that it could win by letting the desert go and getting it back later. Yeah. Uh, but what's what's the, the different with the sort of useful, useless area idea is that um, somehow that empty, quote-unquote, empty area doesn't matter. And I think that's the kind of thinking that led also to uh, uh, leaving the area of the Iraqi desert unprotected that ISIS ended up taking over. Yeah, it was sort exactly. of this false idea that, ah, oh, the desert, whatever, no one lives there. Uh, well, and I mean, I, I think, and I'd be interested in your mm-hmm. thoughts as well, uh, maybe, uh, it, it's, it goes much beyond the notion of useless or useful um, there is a kind of bloody-mindedness to the regime about retaking all of Syria, right? At some no, very sure, important sure. symbolic level, they want to take it all back. I mean, if you look at the way the different campaigns were pursued throughout this war, right? I mean, I mean, again, a rough idea is that you follow the M5 highway, right, which connects. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I mean, actually goes from from Dana all the way up to Aleppo, right? And it's like a vertical spine for the country, right? I mean, their aim was to actually, you know, get control over that entire highway again, and then I think head towards, you know, use less Syria, which is to say, you know, more towards the east. But at the same time, of course, yeah, I mean, I mean, Deir Zor, Raqqa, the Euphrates, all these things are hugely important for Syria, finally, right? I mean, I mean, the notion of useless Syria is incorrect, right? Of course, oil, uh, agriculture in general, water generate, I mean, I mean, water and electricity generation, all this stuff actually comes all from the east. So they need to get it as well. But, you know, the fact is that, you know, the rebels are, well, are at their weakest at this point. Right. And the fact is everyone else, you know, let's say in the East, I mean, or I should say the Kurds in this case, I mean, they have the Americans behind them. So it's a bit of a different situation. Right. And of course, the Kurds are more willing to work with the government. Right. They're neither beast nor foul. Right. In this case. So and this is, this is a, I think, a, a really important test of the usefulness of states. People who know Syria well um, and who have no axe to grind have come down on all sides of this issue. I mean, you know, sort of looking at it ecumenically and saying there's no way they can reconstitute administration and authority all the way to, you know, look what they, you know, pointing to what they've done in recaptured areas and saying, you know, like them or hate them, it turns out uh, that they really, that a determined state really can rebuild these webs of, of governance and control. I mean, I think it will. And the fact is that if you look at what's happening in Duma and these other areas, I mean, you know, maybe it's a temporary situation. Maybe in 30 years we'll have another uprising. It's possible. But at the same time, right now, people, People are just exhausted with the chaos of the war, right? I mean, I mean, again, you know, like the government or not, the fact is that, you know, if you just want your kid to go to school and come back and just be okay, you know, I mean, that's pretty much all you want at this point, right? So there's are things, a, there's are things like markets and hospitals and schools rebounding and, and yeah, functioning? I mean, I mean, for sure, you know, like, I mean, the fact in is... The, you in, the, in the areas that were destroyed, I know in for Damascus sure. and, and... No, no, the is different, right? But even in Duma, right, I mean... For example, I was walking around there, and I saw a market, I saw different areas. And, of course, here's the interesting part, right? The places that actually had reconciled, quote-unquote, you know, or surrendered earlier, right? Those areas actually, you know, rebounded earlier. It's just a fact, because they weren't as destroyed. You know, the Ruta, right, it comprises several towns. If you look at Duma, for example, right, Duma is in, in worse shape than, say, Kafar Batna. Right? And Kafar Batna is a place that surrendered early on. So there you have schools, the markets are open. It's actually not such a tight security grip, you know, versus Duma, which is... You know, more destroyed, of course, but even there you have sort of these attempts to lift, uh, you know, rubble and all this other stuff. Now, of course, again, uh, there is corruption. Of course, there is abuse. Sure. But there is some level of order that wasn't there before or that wasn't there in the last seven years. And, and for some people, that's actually an important point. Well, so, I mean, we're talking about the sort of bigger picture, the long term, long term trajectory of, of uh, state reimposition of power. 
But before you get there, there are these immediate tactical considerations about mm -hmm. Idlib, uh, about the SDF, and about Kurdish areas. Do you have a sense of, you know, uh, what the regime has in mind? I mean, what, what isolation? Isolation is the key point, right? I mean, I mean, the fact is that the government is basically trying its best to isolate different pockets and dealing with them individually, as opposed to dealing with the gestalt of it all. And again, you saw that in their different campaigns in Ghouta and elsewhere, right? In Ghouta, for example, right, they made it a point not to keep the place into one sort of contiguous, uh, you know, target, but instead it divided it into three and dealt with the different rebels, you know, on their own. Because the fact is that the rebels are not a unified command, right, and, and they're not a unified entity, and therefore you could actually sort of go for different deals with each one and therefore weaken them. And I think the same thing will happen right now with the Kurds and the Turks, right? I mean, I mean, of course, you know, the Kurds and the Turks anyway are against each other. And the government will be smart to actually take advantage of those different contradictions, you know, you know, in the sides that are against it, and reimpose its control. And you think in the post-war they'll do the same thing, which is community by community, for sure. reward for sure. the compliant, punish the resistant. Well, for sure, because also the fact is, you know, it's important. I mean, I mean, I mean, Syria. If you think of it as sort of like, you know, part of the region as a whole, right? It really is the heart of the region. Right? I mean, if I think of Jordan, you know, okay, so I'm Jordanian, right? I mean, the fact is, you know, Syria was the lung of Jordanian. So you cannot have a situation where that country is blocked. I mean, the fact is that the Americans wanted actually to stop any kind of border. You're saying it's the long in terms of providing food and, and well, yes, and, and transportation, and everything. I mean, I mean, you know, a Jordanian living in the north of the in the northern part of Jordan would actually cross into Syria every week, buy their groceries, and come back to Jordan because it was so much cheaper. I mean, the point is that that the country is too important to be isolated, right? And and those borders are too essential for regional trade to be blocked up by rebels or what have you, right? That's why, for example, you know, I mean, the Americans had actually, you know, tried their best to make Jordan not open up the border with Syria. But the fact was that Jordanian farmers and Lebanese farmers and businessmen said, enough already, we have to open up this place. We're talking about $1.5 trillion every year in trade. We're talking about, you know, thousands upon thousands of jobs for truckers, um, you know, businessmen, merchants, etc. right? Right, so these borders are essential. And the fact is that, with the SDF in control of northeast Syria, right, and with the Turks in control of the northern part of the country, right, that transit way is still not open, and it has to be opened, right? And I think those pressures will eventually make people, you know, back off and just basically accept government control. It's a fait accompli situation. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking to Nabi Boulos, who covers the Arab world for the Los Angeles Times from a base in Beirut. You can read his dispatches at uh, latimes.com, the Los Angeles Times website. Uh, Nabi, glad uh, you could make some time for us while you were Thank passing you. through New York. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.